One cold winter day uh, some years ago, uh, 74 passengers on a Boeing 737 took off from the Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C., en route to the southern uh, state in the U.S. of Florida. Plane climbed to 400 feet, uh, but there was a major snowstorm in D.C. that day. Uh, caused severe icing on the wings, and the plane started losing altitude. Pilots uh, lost control. The plane crashed on a bridge over the Potomac River and then skidded off the bridge and into the icy waters below. Lots of people saw the crash. There was a lot of traffic on the surrounding roads. A lot of people got out of their cars, including one guy with a television camera that that, uh, filmed all of the rescue efforts. Another guy driving by was a congressional office employee, a fellow named Lenny Skutnik. He stopped, got out of his car, ran to the edge of the river, stripped off his coat and his boots, and dove in the icy uh, water swam to the aircraft and managed to get a, a, light, a line from a hovering helicopter around a young uh, flight attendant, um, a young woman named Priscilla Tirado, and the two of them were tor- towed to the shore. Helicopter then lowered another line of people hanging onto the plane's fuselage, and the line came down on a man named Arland Williams. Instead of wrapping the line around himself, uh, he instead wrapped it around uh, another young woman uh, named Kelly Duncan. Then the line comes back. Uh, Williams wraps the next available line uh, around the most seriously injured man hanging to the fuselage, a man named Joe Stiley. By the time the helicopter returns for Williams, he had disappeared. Uh, beneath the icy surface. In the freezing water for 29 minutes, he was the only passenger to die by drowning. A few days later, the President of the United States, in a nationally televised speech, uh, honored Arland Williams and the others involved in these dramatic uh, rescue efforts. Uh, They were acclaimed as genuine heroes uh, for risking their lives, uh, and in Williams' case, losing it uh, in their acts of courageous self-sacrifice. Of course, we tend to have great respect uh, for people who make these kinds of choices in dramatic moments of crisis uh, or simply in quiet, unacknowledged service uh, for others. Last few months, we've been studying important men and women in the Bible. And one of the greatest examples of a courageous, self-sacrificing attitude in the Bible is the life of the woman Esther, a part of which is recorded for us in the Old Testament. Just a word of background, the Old Testament teaches us that about 600 years before Christ, Israel, the nation of Israel, was conquered 
by the Babylonian uh, ancestors uh, of the modern Iranians. Uh, most of those who survived the invasion and uh, the war were forced to leave their homelands and travel about a thousand miles to the east to the area that is now uh, southern Iran. Uh, most of the Jewish community that were over there uh, stayed over there for about 70 years or more. Uh, several generations of Jewish children were born there and grew up there. Uh, one young woman named Esther uh, was born and grew up in this uh, alien land, uh, became completely integrated into the culture, and the Old Testament book is named for her. The Old Testament book of Esther is named for her. First two chapters of the book describe how Esther, who was not known as Jewish, it was not always a positive thing to be known as Jewish, and this culture there that had some prejudice uh, toward the Jewish people, uh, she was not known as Jewish, but through this fascinating set of circumstances that are described for us in the first two chapters of her book, she became queen. Her older cousin Mordecai, uh, who had raised Esther after the death of her parents, uh, was a part of the king's administration. He was a senior uh, individual in the administration of the king's uh, court. Of course, there were not only Israelis in the area. Uh, Babylon had conquered other countries and forced the leading people of those other countries to go into their homeland and serve them more or less as slaves, uh, like they had the Israelites. And some of these people, uh, like some of the modern Palestinians and Arabs, had a really strong and irrational hatred uh, for Jews. And the king's prime minister, a man named Haman, was one of these people who had this deep racial prejudice and hatred uh, for the Jewish people. And chapter 3 of the book of Esther explains how Haman uh, skillfully manipulated the king into setting a date in which the people of the empire uh, had full authorization and were encouraged to go out and kill their Jewish neighbors. It was, it was a type of planned holocaust uh, similar to what happened to the Jewish people in Germany and, and in Europe in the 1940s. Well, of course, when the, key, the king's decree was made public, uh, the Jewish people uh, were, of course, shocked and afraid, to say the least. When that brings us to the book of Esther, chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 3. And I'm just skimming over some of these verses for the sake of time, but read along with me here in, in the overheads. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 4, the scripture tells us that when Mordecai learned what had been done, he tore his clothes and went out into the city crying loudly and bitterly. He stood outside the gate of the palace. And this is, a, this is a catastrophe. I mean, now there has been this decree comes down that authorizes, you know, just this broad, widespread slaughter of his 
people. And obviously he displays a lot of emotion. We read on when King, Queen Esther's maids told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. Esther then sent for her attendant, Hathak, and ordered him to go out and find, what was, find out what was troubling Mordecai. Uh, Esther was isolated in her, in her quarters. Uh, she didn't know what was happening. But, of course, she was hearing that Mordecai was melting down uh, here in, in the neighborhood, and she's, of course, uh, concerned. So we read on in verse 7, Mordecai told Hathak the whole story. He also gave Esther's attendant a copy of the decree that called for the death of all Jews. He also urged her to go to the king to plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Obviously, Mordecai, knowing that she is strategically placed, wants her to use her position to intervene and get this decision reversed. Uh, Mordecai's message was delivered to Esther, and we can read Esther's response. We read in verse 10, Esther told Hathok to go back and tell Mordecai, The whole world knows that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his scepter. The king has not called for me to come to him in more than a month. So Esther replies uh, by explaining the protocol. Uh, She reminds Mordecai that anyone, even the king's wife, Uh, who went to him uninvited, uh, might well lose their life. Uh, I guess it was kind of a convenient way to keep away pesky neighbors. Uh, Might have been a way to make sure that any assassination attempts were thwarted from the get-go. But in any case, a very different, obviously, culture and society than the modern culture that we live in. But if you made an effort to get around the king without full permission and authorization in advance, you stood well to lose your life. So obviously, she doesn't just warmly embrace Mordecai's counsel to go and try to reverse this decision. But then Mordecai responds with some very straight talk. And we read these verses, verse 13 and 14. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that you will escape there in the palace when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. What's more... Who can say that you have not been elevated to the palace for just such a moment as this? We can make several observations about uh, Mordecai's uh, point of view and his counsel. Uh, First of all, he's convinced that a selfish choice on Esther's part, a a choice of just self-protection, 
probably it's not going to spare her. Her identity will become known. It's going to become a big mess. And so she's probably not going to experience a positive benefit of cowardice in this situation. He also believes that regardless of her decisions, God's plans will ultimately not be frustrated. Uh, He knows some of the biblical prophecies, particularly those in the book of Isaiah, in which God promises that the Israelites will return to the nation, to their homeland, to the nation, to to the land of Israel. And so he, he knows that God will keep his promises in some way, whether or not uh, Esther makes the right choice here. So God's sovereign purposes are way bigger. Nonetheless, she's in a very, very strategic position. And so he points out finally that edu- Esther is very strategically placed, apparently in God's providence, to be a unique instrument of God in her particular circumstances at this point of crisis. Well, now she's faced with a critical decision. The well-being, in fact, the life of her people are in jeopardy. Uh, She's uh, faced with circumstances in which her choices are going to have a dramatic effect uh, on the people around her. And so she has to make one of the fundamental choices of life. Is she going to live a life of courageous self-sacrifice, or is she going to yield to an attitude of self-centered selfishness? And after no doubt some very serious soul-searching, prayerfully thinking through very carefully which path at this crossroads that she is going to take, She makes a dramatic choice. And we read in verse 15, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa, which was the capital city where they were living, and fast for me for three days, night and day. My maids and I will do the same. Some great promises in the scripture about fasting when people are faced with difficult or desperate circumstances, if they will pull away from the normal routine and possibly for eating, eating for a while and seek the will of God and God's intervention, he will honor that. So she is leaning into these promises about fasting and requests that uh, they do this. And then she says, then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, then I'm willing to die. So Mordecai did as Esther told him. It's a very courageous young woman. Uh, She is willing to go all in for what she believes to be the right thing. Because of that courage and because of her attitude of willing, courageous self-sacrifice, she has been celebrated uh, among the Jewish people for 2,500 years and read about on a routine uh, basis by millions of people around the world today. 
And so we read on in verse 1 through 3. Three days later, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace. The king was sitting on his royal throne uh, facing the entrance. And when he saw Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her, holding out his scepter for her. Now, you can imagine the relief that when he warmly welcomes her and invites her in, and and Esther approaches, and the king asks her, What do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. God has given her great favor uh, with the king, her husband. She's made the right choice. And then there's this really favorable uh, response. And if you've not read the book of Esther, uh, or not recently, I really encourage you to do it. It's only ten short chapters, and it's an easy read. Uh, Esther reveals her Jewish identity to the king. Uh, The king then grants the Jews the right to defend themselves. And in a type of poetic justice, as we read through the book of Esther, Haman, the PM, uh, ends up being hung. So in the fascinating details that are there, God orchestrates the circumstances so that the individual who is seeking his own exaltation and power and prominence and position ends up dying a humiliating criminal's death while the intended victims uh, become greatly blessed through this really evil uh, conspiracy. And instead of a slaughter of the Jews uh, across the empire, the circumstances uh, turn out eventually for their benefit. Uh, Esther's choices had positive effects way beyond uh, anything that she could have anticipated. Well, how is this relevant, uh, this information, this story relevant to you and me? Well, there's all kinds of lessons that we can gain as we look carefully and prayerfully at this material that God has provided for us in the Scripture But one of the relevant points uh, is that the Bible teaches the great mystery that God, uh, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the origin of life uh, and energy, who, as Paul says, immortal, invisible, he is grand and majestic beyond our remotest uh, intellectual capabilities or comprehension, But the Bible teaches that he himself possesses this very quality of courageous self-sacrifice. Of course, the most dramatic example of this in the Bible is becoming incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the Christ. And we read in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, even the Son of Man, which is a reference to Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. 
a remarkable insight into the nature of God. God is a loving being. He is a holy being. He is a self-sacrificing being. And we read in 2 Corinthians verse uh, chapter 5, he says that he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him. And, of course, for his kingdom purposes. Uh, the New Testament also teaches that uh, when you and I believe, when we understand the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, when we put our faith in him and trust him for forgiveness, when we become eternally united to him, spiritually speaking, he begins the effort of developing this very same quality within us. His qualities within us. He begins reproducing over time within us some of the character qualities of himself that are revealed in the life of Jesus. And uh, like Esther, and even more specifically like Jesus, we uh, get to choose uh, whether or not we will collaborate in his effort to develop within us his, his very own qualities, including courageous self-sacrifice, or if we will resist that leading. If we, 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 can, we have every choice to resist his direction. He doesn't violate uh, our choice. We're given uh, the uh, awful dignity of choice. And so... In the process of growing and maturing as a Christian, we get these choices, often not dramatic. I mean, obviously Esther is a story about a person who was placed in a very dramatic set of circumstances in a great crisis. Um, But often the uh, choices that are before us are not dramatic. Uh, We aren't faced with great crises. Normally... Uh, we get to choose between much more mundane options that nevertheless have dramatic consequences for our own personal life, for our marriage and family, for the quality of life of our children, and for those around us. Uh, Paul, as well as Jesus, encourages us uh, in this direction. Paul says in chapter Two of his letter to the Philippians, he says, don't look out merely for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have the attitude in yourselves that was in Christ. And there are beautiful verses uh, in the New Testament describing Christ's loving, giving, self-sacrificing nature. And Jesus himself says, give and it will be given to you. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And I, I don't think that, and I think you'd probably agree, that it doesn't refer only and exclusively to money. If we give ourselves uh, to him, if we devote and make available to him our gifts, our intelligence, our capabilities, our motivations, our uh, gifts, our strengths, and we invite him to use them in the ways that he intends and his global kingdom purposes, he will honor that. He will most definitely honor that. 
And to the degree that we are available and give of ourselves, both to him and to those around us, it will, he says it will be measured back. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Some very uh, specific uh, possible choices that you face in closing. Um, most people that observe the Beijing expat community f- over time um, know that you know the, for the corporate people and diplomatic people, sometimes some of the educational uh, people and leaders, often people are assigned to Beijing in their mid-late 30s, early 40s. And, uh, of course, the, that period, particularly in the early 40s for men, uh, can be a dangerous time, uh, the whole midlife thing, because sometimes when men reach those delicate years, uh, some of the expectations and the dreams that they may have had for themselves uh, do not appear to be uh, happening and maybe not even achievable. And so uh, men can begin uh, struggling in this area at the very time that they find themselves, for many people, a very foreign and strange environment with a whole lot of stress, cross-cultural stress, work stress, sometimes marriage stress. Kids are starting to move possibly into the teen years, and that adds additional stress. And everybody who's observed the scene for very long knows that there is a tremendous amount of sexual temptation out there for the average guy, particularly those who travel. I've heard some amazing and awful stories about the initiative that's been taken to friends uh, when they're out there. It's almost like this is a poisonous gas that just filters through any crack, nook, or cranny. And uh, guys can be faced on a pretty routine basis. Uh, with some just awful choices, alone, sometimes under stress, and, and so on. And making the choice for courageous self-sacrifice may be for you uh, making the tough decision to honor your marriage vows and expressing love for your wife, uh, even when at times you are not feeling it. A wives, uh, courageous self-sacrifice sometimes can be finding ways to express respect and encouragement uh, to your husband, even though, of course, sometimes you may not be feeling it. Uh, there's a fantastic book uh, called Love and Respect. It's about two of the key needs of each partner in a marriage that's been published uh, uh, several years ago. That's why I highly encourage you to read it. I was just talking to a couple this past week that uh, read that and said that their whole way of relating to each other has been very significantly affected by reading that book and applying it. This kind of decision may mean for parents uh, prayerfully, diligently trying to understand each child uh, and respond. You know, our, our kids sometimes can be very different, motivated by very different kinds of, of things. And uh, these kinds of choices can involve responding in patience and love, uh, even when we may be weary or irritable. With co-workers, uh, living this life can be making every effort to listen, uh, to try to understand 
the alternative point of view when there's tension in work relationships and respond well, seek to genuinely grasp and grapple with other types of information and communicate as best we can with with kindness uh, and respect, even if we ourselves may feel disrespected. And, of course, with money, choosing to give significant portions of our income toward God's kingdom and meeting the needs of those around us. Uh, Because by any measure, uh, we are some of the wealthiest people that have lived on planet Earth. Of course, it's very easy for us to lose sight of that. But there are an ocean of needs around us to develop the awareness and the perception and availability to understand uh, the great needs around us and then making all of ourselves, including our gifts and our money, available for God's purposes. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let's pray together.